What's up, everybody? Welcome to another of our Facebook Live series that we've been doing. This actually isn't a Facebook Live. This was done on Instagram when we were doing those uh, several, several months ago at this point. Uh, this is with Christian Machado, formerly of El Nino. Uh, this is kind of uh, an extra bonus thing that we're doing for Machado Week. If I was better with my graphics, you would see a cool him being a shark thing. Maybe I should have made one of those like anamorph things. Do you guys... Are you guys old enough to remember that? Do you remember those books, Animorphs? You know, basically it was like a person and then they turn into a thing, like some kind of an animal, obviously, morphing Animorphs, you know, whatever. Um, but regardless, we're in the throes, basically, of Machado Week. Uh, Sunday, we already posted the episode, the podcast we did uh, back in March. Uh, this was done a week after that. Uh, we did an Instagram Live and we just kind of bullshitted for another hour and a half. Uh, so at this point, I think if you're keeping score, the running tally of Machado material... Uh, sitting somewhere around almost four hours at this point. So if you're not uh, bored to death of hearing me and Christian chop it up, uh, this should be a good time as well. Um, he answers some fan questions that were happening live in the moment and uh, just kind of carried on some of the conversation that we did from the podcast. So it just felt fitting to kind of throw this in as a companion piece and also to kind of set up uh, what we're doing tomorrow as of when you're hearing this. Uh, we are going to do our Facebook YouTube live series uh, with Christian. Uh, basically, we wanted to do something Something a little bit more in the present and not done three months ago. Um, the record comes out this Friday, uh, as of when you're hearing this, the 25th. The album is called Hollywood E Sycamore. Uh, there's a couple singles and videos up on YouTube and anywhere else. Just go uh, find Christian on his socials and so forth. And uh, very much looking forward to having Dan involved in this one because I know from him listening to the podcast, him checking this one out. You know, he really wants to talk to Christian and uh, actually get him on probably discography discussion or discuss metal as well. So hopefully that happens. And uh, yeah, I'll get done blabbing and we'll see you tomorrow uh, where we're going to talk with Christian more. And then we'll see you Sunday where we are dropping our episode with Brad from Three Doors Down. Talk to you then. Oh, damn. What's up, brother? How you doing, man? Chilling, chilling. What are you up to, man? Having a couple of drinks. What you got? What are you drinking? I got this uh, lighthearted Bells. Oh, okay. damn. Oh, you got the blue? You got the little PBR going? Hold okay. on. Okay. You know, I'm making some bad decisions. Not as many, just smoking a cigar. And uh, got a little Perrier. What's oh, up with wow. the Perrier, okay. bro? This is some <laughs> fancy shit, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I used to, uh, I used to remember seeing, you know, all the celebrities on cribs, you know, talking about Cristal, and I always thought it was like super fancy or whatever. And then, you know, I go to the grocery store and I just see Cristal light everywhere. So I don't really think it's that that special. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not. I only, I, I only drank on the road pretty much, you know, just to loosen the nerves. nerves. It was only twenty three hours. <laughs> yeah, just to loosen the nerves really is what it was, and I really didn't. It's not like I drank during the day. I just like a couple of shots right before the stage just to loosen the nerves. But then I, I think all musicians go through periods. At least most do. The ones that are lucky, you know, usually you go through periods and like you try something on tour and then you're like, oh, that didn't work that good. Let me try something <laughs> else. You know, but what you up to, man? How you handling? I got a couple of notes of things like people were asking and stuff, but let's bullshit a little bit first, you know? Yeah, what you uh, up I was to? Just uh, basically saying that we did a podcast a week ago uh, that probably won't be out for 
about a month at least. It'll be out closer to uh, your record coming out, which I think is somewhere around September-ish, maybe. Who knows? Right uh, on. So um, just kind of saying that, you know, we, we were able to do, you know, really cool uh, conversation, kind of went all over the place. Um, and I was, like, kind of saying, like, I don't really know, like, how much of it I want to keep in or if I just want to, like, streamline it straight to, like, just kind of more of the interview-based kind of thing. But I kind of listened back to it a little bit, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm always – like I was telling you, I was like, it's so hard because it's like, you know, you listen to, like, you and Doc on, on the X-Man podcast, and I was like, oh, it's so cool, like, when they're just bullshitting about stuff because that's when it's more real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interesting tangents happen, and then it's like, you know, when it's like, all right, well, let's, let's steer it back to where we were. And then it's just like – is that what people really want to hear? Or, like, I, I don't know. Like, like I told you, I was like, you know, sometimes I do this shit, and I'm just like, no one gives a fuck what I have to say. I'm not Doc Coyle, who's been, you know, on the road for 20-some-odd years and toured with all these bands and has fun stories. It's just, like, second-hand accounts of stuff. This experiences I've had, it just sounds like I'm almost, like, name-dropping for the sake of fucking name-dropping. Well, you had, you had, you recently had a good friend of mine on there. You had Lindsay from Cold, right? Yeah. She's super yep. badass. Yeah. She's awesome. She lives like I yeah, don't know, she's... twenty minutes from where I live. She lives in Fallbrook oh, really? in Temecula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a cool little yeah. area out here, you know. Yeah, it was. Uh, was that, that was a good interview with Lindsay? Yeah. So, ah, fuck. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll say it like this. It was a good interview. Um, tell me something. I, I Come really... on, I want to light a cigar. Tell, right. tell me something. All right. So, um. Sometimes when, because of the nature of our show where, you know, we, I, uh, as the person and my co-host on the other, on the front side of things, you know, the intros and outros, you know, we might talk about a beer like last night. Uh, I did something different and had my co-host pick out of my three beers I had. I had him pick what he wanted me to drink and try on the, on the show. Um, uh, I got a, I got a, I, you got a pen with you? My homie Bobby asked, how was it like working with Marco Siega? Write that down really quick. Not, not a oh, weed oh. pen. <laughs> not a weed pen. A real hey. pen, man. <laughs> I have my, my MacBook over here, so let Just me... Just uh, write down Marco Siega, and we'll, we'll answer yeah. it in a little bit after you tell me the Lindsay, the Lindsay interview. Yeah, so basically, uh, on occasion... Um, I'm probably spelling my name wrong, but I don't care. Um, but it, it turns into a thing sometimes where, because of that, we've had people, most notably Scott Stapp, uh, won't agree to do the show because we... It's because of us talking about alcohol or whatever, even though the brew kind of is more of a pun on, like, you and I having a brutally honest conversation about shit or whatever. Right. That's kind of what happens on the show at, on occasion. And they were like, you know, he's really strong in his sobriety, which is awesome. But we've also had people come on and talk about their sobriety. I had Tommy Victor Prong come on. And he's like, oh, I was really nervous to do the show because I don't drink. And I kind of turned him around at the end. He's like, oh, man, like you really kind of like asked me some really interesting questions. And I'm really glad I didn't turn this interview down. Uh, because, of, you know, I don't drink and you're a drinking show. And I was like, well, we are, but that's not the crux of the show. Um, the crux of the show is this. The meat and potatoes is the interview you're hearing. The rest of it is just kind of filling on the, on the outside. So same thing kind of happens on occasion with some of these bands. And- that is funny that Scott Stapp didn't want to do the show because the word brew is on it. Yeah, so something I've kind of That's said, amazing. Kind of, we ran into that with Cold. Um, basically, Scooter is sober, and, and that's great. Um, yeah. What's up, Matt? Um, it's one of those things where I was bummed that he wouldn't come on. Because my thing with it is this, and, and, and I'll ask you this, um, and see if you think, as someone who had to do a bunch of press and shit, if I'm being a fucking asshole for thinking this way. 
but to me, it's like if you won't come on a show where where you're a publicist and and you can listen to the show and realize that like that's not the crux of the interview and it's not really what the show is all about. It's not a one trick pony. But the way I kind of approached it and had been thinking about it and kind of getting a little upset about it is if you won't come on my show to because of a name because it, it threatens I don't want to say threatens because it might be an issue with your sobriety, then you should never go to a club and play shows. You shouldn't take any of the extra money you stand to make as an artist uh, because you hit a certain bar goal. And you should never play at a... You should only just play VFW halls. Because... Well, it is, it's, definitely, it's definitely true that if, you, if you're in rock and roll, you have to accept that there's a culture of... And I don't, you know, we probably shouldn't generalize it to just rock and roll because there's probably a no. culture of partying in every, like, you know, niche oh, or whatever you want to call it. But yeah. for sure, it's, it's weird that someone wouldn't want to do, like, I'm trying to think of the first time I heard of your show. At first, I thought it was brutally. Like, when I heard yeah. the name, I thought it was brutally. Like, you know, you, you're like it a is. brutal band, you know? Or, yeah. Oh, B-R-U-T. Um, I got you. Yeah, Spell yeah, it. yeah. At, yeah. First, at first, I thought it was like, Oh, okay. It's like brutally speaking, like you could basically say whatever. That's the first thing I took away from the show. Right. You could basically say whatever you want to say. Nobody's really gonna like judge you or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, but then when I read that it was brew, I didn't even I don't know. It didn't even like hit me. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. To me, always the thing that stuck about the name of the show was oh, it's a show about being as open as possible or something like that. The goal. That's what I want. Like I want people to. Go on. I mean, my co-host uh, made a joke one night because my last name is Beatty. And he was like, oh, you know, you make all the headlines. You should call the show Click Beatty. And I was like, no, no one will come on that show. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, I like that pun. That's a, that's a fucking clever name. But Click Beatty. Yeah, literally speaking instead. Oh, damn. I guess yeah, man, I mean, it's a beautiful day. What, what you got going on over there? What's the weather like where you're at? Uh, it was a nice day. It's actually like 80 some odd degrees. So I'm a mowed half my lawn today because it was, I'm super pale and I don't like being out in the hot. So I only mowed half my lawn. The front half you can see and I'll do the back half tomorrow. <laughs> right on. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have no funky work like that going on, dude. It's just a regular, nice, beautiful California day. It's been like this pretty much the whole time, dude. I'm lucky where I'm at. I can come outside. We're on a cul-de-sac. I could just hang or walk to the park you know but some yeah. people are, are like living in concrete jungles and really having to deal with some bullshit you know yeah it's terrible but luckily yeah. for me man i've been chilling out here pretty much just enjoying the sun lucky to be outside for sure <laughs> Shit. yeah michigan some of michigan is dealing with uh floods right now so that's been the news of the day What's going on in Michigan? Uh, Midland is dealing with floods, uh, about like nine feet of water. Oh, like a dam, shit. I guess, broke or Dude. something. So like, I mean, it's not a joke, but I kind of made like the comment earlier today. I was like, so we have a plague, we have a swarm coming, and we have a flood. What were some of the other bullshits that were happening in the, in the Bible that apparently were signing the, the end times? <laughs> yeah, fire. Yeah, fire. Well, I guess we already had those. You know, volcanoes. Yeah, vo yeah, volcanoes and fires, and and what else? What else did they predict in the Bible? Um, 
Well, now nah, I'm thinking more Nostradamus. Nostradamus predicted that somebody was going to come from the Far East, right? It was like the Far East. Some power figure would rise and challenge the world or something like that. Which, you know, when, when, when Kim Jong-un was, when the news was going around that he was probably dead or something, I was like, fuck, Nostradamus was right. It's his <laughs> sister. His sister's going to fuck everything up. <laughs> Did they allow? I was like Nostradamus was talking about Kim Jong Un's sister. <laughs> Did they allow women to power over there in in the over there? I don't know. Maybe it was like some misinformation campaign put out. It could have been just some misinformation campaign put out over here to like if she didn't go into power, you know, then they'd be able to talk garbage about them or something. I I don't know. But apparently he's still alive, which was shocking. Oh, is he? They, they were coming out. Yeah, they were coming out with everything that he's saying. He's dead. He's dead. He's probably probably dead, or died, or you know, a failed surgery or something like that. Yeah, created some interesting memes, <laughs> like the one of the grape uh, with the. Why don't they just call Dennis Rodman? You think Dennis Rodman knows what's going on with Kim Jong Un? I don't know. As I've learned uh, in doing some of these interviews, you guys, is any if anybody's watching, y'all think Dennis Rodman knows what's going on with Kim Kim Young Un? I mean, he probably has him on speed dial because they're pretty good buddies, right? That was like the way they they yeah. presented that relationship was they're really good friends, and he visits a lot, and he knows him well. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of funny for his big. What's up, Eddie Torres is on. What's up, rock and roll beard dude? How you doing, man? I wonder if uh, if if Dennis Rodman knows what's up with Kim Jong Un, dude. I've been thinking about that. When that shit came out, the first thing that popped in my head was like, "What does Dennis Rodman have to say about this?" It's, I don't know. It's funny because, like, as a huge fan of his, like, he was doing that bullshit of like, "Oh, I'm leaving uh, Instagram and blank him on a days," and then, as far as I know, never did. But it was all like to boost his podcast that I think was short lived as well. I don't know. It was weird. He was like talking to like more or less strangers. Like he was talking to that I swear was like sixteen and eighteen about their like crazy sex life and shit. I was like, Ugh, I don't know. well, he's always been a freak. He's always been a freaky ass dude doing freaky yeah. things. And I'm a huge fan of his playing as well. I mean, he was yeah. one. You know, he was one of the guys that really he stood up for individualism for sure in the league. You know, and I thought well, that was the way I do. Yeah. But uh, let's uh, let's get on to the one question we have at least with uh, Marco Siega. Wanted to talk a whole bunch of shit about working with him. <laughs> uh, Marco Siega was awesome, man. Um, he's uh, he was a director at the time that had really good relationships with a lot of record companies. Had a really good relationship with Bobby Carlton, who was managing us at the time. Um, I think he, I, I think it was mostly through Andy Gould. We were being managed by Andy Gould. And um, he had some really good, you know, friends in the industry. Marco Siega was one. They, I believe he introduced them to Roadrunner Records and Roadrunner was interested in doing the video. And the video was a shitload of money. I mean, it was the most expensive video we had ever done. And we had done the God Save Us video, which was d recorded in California in a theater at a university, I don't remember exactly what university it was. Mike Gitter, our A&R guy, probably remembers it because he was there. He booked it. Mm. Um, and it was, it was $10,000 to shoot the video. 
And all we did, because back then everything was on film. This has got save us, now what comes around. This was our first, first video ever. Like Roadrunner didn't want to drop, you know, the, the, right. the, money, the money bag yet. They were still feeling it out. Like, we don't know if this shit's going to do good, you know. And, and in, in defense to them, at the time, there was a lot of bands and labels were, you know, throwing things at the wall, seeing what fans liked mostly. But we did the God Save Us video, and it was literally, we showed up at the university, like at 12. Mm -hmm. We did three takes. We did three takes of the song. We set up, took about an hour, did three takes of the song, and left. And then that was edited, and that was $10,000. And everything was on film. The video actually is really cool, and they had, like, projectors. I don't know if you could tell. People that watch the God Save Us video, you might be able to tell. There's, like, images um kind of floating past the performance that that wasn't done in post that was actually a projector that was there back in the day everything had to be done most of the things had to be done you know the real way there was like no put it in the computer and then like you know add some flashes and stuff like that i think that there was some things they could do but obviously you know even with a hundred, two hundred thousand dollar budget back in the day you didn't have the expenditure to do those kind of things but God Save Us was 10 Gs. That was like a quick shoot video. And then Marco Siega was the next video. I guess Roadrunner felt at the time, okay, they have good management. Um, they have uh, their manager is well connected and those really good directors. And it's probably the right time to shoot a video for this song. I think What Comes Around has started getting on radio and stuff like that. So they they dropped they definitely dropped the money back on that one big time and I think the budget was two hundred fifty thousand dollars but it wound up being closer to three when it was all finalized it wound up being like about three hundred thousand mm. dollars and um, and he did videos he did like System of a Down videos yep um, he did the Sui video he did the POD video yeah yeah and and those videos I think were even more expensive than our videos I think, I think those videos. Yeah, like the, a live video might have been almost closer to a million bucks if I, if now that I can think about it. I have a weird question, kind of speaking to to uh, that song. Obviously, you guys re-recorded some of the songs on the record in Spanish, right? And this might be a really weird question. I just literally thought of it. Did they put? Did Roadrunner push both versions of the singles to different radio? And like that became kind of like a, a, a literally a bilingual uh, dual advertising uh, thing to try to get the song to, to react in two different technical formats uh, between, you know, maybe Latin radio and uh, regular terrestrial radio. Um, they didn't go with anything Latin to ter terrestrial radio in the U.S. That was mostly right. just for them to go to pitch to like you know, South American radio stations, mostly central Mexico, Argentina, uh, Spain. That was mainly the, the markets that I think that impacted. At least I, I remember going to Mexico and hearing like the kids say, are you, are you going to do, uh, you know, how can I live with what comes around in Spanish tonight? Right. And I would usually mix it up towards later on in the career. I think I just wound up singing it in English because most kids were used to hearing it that way. So that's what they, they wanted to hear and wanted to sing back. Right. Um, but, but, yeah, uh, I mean, it was just uh, interesting times. That's definitely all I got to say about that.
it was just one of those that I know, like, you know, state uh, labels and such will do kind of weird tactics to kind of keep a band in the red. Um, so it was one of those where I was like, you know what, I don't think I've ever thought about, you know, because obviously we're, most people in most interviews are kind of focused solely here in the States or, you know, maybe European markets and so forth. But you were in the unique position where they could kind of shop you playing a version of the song to a completely different demographic uh, that speaks a different language. And, you know, I'm thinking about it, kind of thinking more through it, I'm remembering, you know, Justin Bieber when he did Despacito, even though that's not his song, that apparently his Latin fan base and just went fucking ape shit because they're like, oh my God, it's the first time I'm hearing him sing in my native tongue. And mm -hmm. so thinking about how big that is uh, for some people, that it made me wonder if it was like kind of one of those weird things where Rodan was like, yeah, we're going to push the single also in other markets that speak Spanish or whatever. And then you're like, oh, okay, cool. But they're like, okay, now they just doubled your radio budget. <laughs> or you yeah. created a singular song and then didn't do that. So that, I don't know. It's kind of a weird question. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what kind of budget they did have for any kind of radio in, in international territories. I, I mean, I'm sure they had to have pushed it somehow. But I don't, I don't necessarily recall in the U.S. it having anything caught on or anything like that. Um, it, it was kind of like a bipolar kind of promotional move, you know, mm -hmm. where we're going to use... They, they knew we were a Latino band, so I did a couple of versions of songs in Spanish, and, you know, I don't think they were planning on really crossing any of that over to the U.S., kind of like Justin Bieber did. He was really, really lucky, though, because he already had a ton of Latin fans that probably loved him, you know? Yeah. So for all those Latino teenagers it was probably like oh my god you know he's doing a song in spanish yeah absolutely and then that was the funny thing is when they wanted him to do the song he's like man i don't i don't know how to, i don't know the lyrics and then over the beat just kept saying like ignorant shit like dorito and doritos and other well, <laughs> and then you're just like that's that's so terrible someone someone had asked what it felt like to play vive latino vive latino was probably one of the coolest shows we, we ever played man it was like fifty thousand people in a stadium in Mexico. And it was with the Mars Volta and a lot of cool other acts, but just wanted to, to throw that in there really quick before I forgot that I saw that. But, uh, but with, Despacito, with Despacito, going back to that, it, it, it is funny though, because as an artist, you know, you, you, could, you could view it two ways. Um, you could view it as a conditioned artist that's been in the studio 10 million times and seen and witnessed how everything works. Or you could view it as a listener, you know? And as a listener, for sure, Despacito has the more, you know, innocent, listening, pleasurable experience, if you know what I mean. Because you're just yeah. listening, it's just a song, you're not judgmental, there isn't, you know, this, oh, I, I, I know who Justin Bieber is, I know what he's done, you know, and things like that. But from an artistic point of view, you know, I, I, I almost, I was happy. I, I was happy for him because I, I thought Justin Bieber is a talented artist. It doesn't matter if he's an asshole on his own personal life or whatever. Whatever right. he does is is his fucking problem. But you know, as long as he's not hurting people, whatever he does is is really his issue. But when you know Despacito came out, I, I thought it was a great move that he did business wise 
Yeah. Um, but artistically, you know, as an artist and a Latino artist, you're like, oh, God, you know, he was in the studio and they were punching in every single word. And, you know, and they were like, oh, you got to pronounce that a little bit better. And they probably, you know, they probably went word by word, I imagine. I don't know, because to sing a song and then not remember what you sang at all and not even remember how some of the words are pronounced is yeah. pretty telling. It's pretty yeah. telling from a studio point of view of what might have been done, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, I've seen, you know, I think most notably Jonathan Davis and Korn. Um, I know Ozzy has the teleprompter on stage. I can't remember if Ivan from Finger has one, too. And it just makes me wonder if it's, like, is it there in case they for only in case they forget or do they just go out there and they're like whatever i'm not even really looking at the set list like fuck it like just that's that's going to be kind of my catch-all to be like oh we're doing this one okay like here's the because i know like some people i've heard where they're like oh i kind of forgot a song or whatever and then once like the first two to three words came out i was like oh, oh, oh fuck there it is there it is there it is and mm -hmm. you, you fall right back into it because you obviously that's typically wrote it or whatever but i think it speaks more sometimes to at least in uh, Justin Bieber's thing, I don't think he wrote uh, any of his lyric lyrics, uh, and that's why he doesn't remember them because he didn't have to commit pen to paper. He probably was like, "Here's your here's your song, or here's our song. Here's what you're saying, and we're probably punching you in for every word, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. teaching you yeah, a yeah. sentence so we can get through a sentence at a time. Copy paste it all. They might have even they might have even had like a linguist there. Probably, you know, somebody who could like coach him through the pronunciations. They might have, and for sure, it was Louis Fonsi that wrote the lyric. It wasn't. Yep. You know. Yeah, he was on an episode of a uh, song, Songland or Songbird or whatever the other day. I don't know if you watch that show at all. Yeah, yeah, very cool show actually. I've I've only seen like one or two episodes, but for a songwriter, you know, as a songwriter, it is cool to watch other songwriters work. I don't care what anybody has to say about what kind of music they're doing. When you're a songwriter, you you listen as a songwriter first and then and then if you know you, you get to your judgmental more conditioned mind you know conclusions funny i was watching that the other day and i think i've kind of stumbled across the formula for it in the fact that i think they grab songs that, that will be the song that you'll end up hearing someone pick the artist pick that they basically can tear down like it might be like oh there's a cool hook or there's a cool melody like musical melody in it but they can tear down the rest of it and then basically yeah. rebuild it. Cause I was like, I, I don't, and I've been trying to find the ins and outs of the show so I can kind of see if I'm right. But I think if my line of thinking, just knowing how the industry side of shit works, I feel like they would do that because then they would only have to pay someone a, a very finite amount of royalties if they even pay them. Because then at that point it will be like, well, we only took this part of your song and then we built 99% of it around your one idea. So either here's, the royalty for for that or i don't know if they sign away their publishing or whatever because it wouldn't surprise me if they sign away the rights to the music or whatever that they create or pitch oh on well, the show. well well for sure i could tell you how how it kind of works with in the pop world with songwriters definitely you're you're giving away you know at least half of your publishing at least and most of the time when you have a big songwriter like that work with you on one song, yeah. if, if you're not hiring them for the whole album, the price for the one song is going to be almost the same price that they would charge you for the whole album. Because right. what, would, what would occur is you got these amazing songwriters that know 
what people will take to, you know, there's in the pop world. I imagine there's people out there that know what pop people are going to want to listen to when they structure things certain ways. They begin things in certain places to make sure that it's something that the pop world will accept. But, you know, the, the, I imagine some of it is very clinical, you know, and how are we going to make it happen? Uh, And some of it, I imagine, has to be chemistry. Really, the producer there hearing at that moment what the artist wants to do in his mind, concluding, you know, will that work in, in promotional, in a promotional world? And sometimes there is such a thing as a songwriter who will just change a word or two just to try to take publishing on it, you know? I mean, a credit thief could steal your credit just the same way you could steal credit for a song. He could steal your credit card, you know? He could be, somebody could be in a room with you. Somebody could be in a room with you while you're writing a song. And, you know, God forbid they even, like, make a dumb suggestion. They could be like, oh, well, I suggested this when he was writing the song. I think that's an interesting thing about, first of all, I find that show interesting because most of the people they have on the show are, are pretty prolific producers in their own right, like making songs with other artists. So I find mm-hmm. it interesting that they come on a show where I'm like, but this is sort of what you do. So other than just name brand record, like recognizability for the show aspect, why even have people on? But like, there's a dude that lives out here um, that is now in the Burp. I do is in a band called The Last Vegas uh, in the mid to late '90s that got signed, kind of just like an actual, like a great like radio rock band. And he was telling some wild ass stories about how he became a songwriter, but like not in the sense of getting any pub or anything like that. Literally writing a song, and then like, so a label would come to him and go, "Hey, we're we're working on the next Kelly Clarkson. This is." Working on this next Kelly Clarkson record, uh, we would like you to write three songs. Uh, we were thinking, you know, like the first single kind of a song, up, uh, about two and a half, three minute song, uh, very hook driven. Uh, we want a ballad, and then we want kind of something in between. Um, we'll come back to you in two weeks. Get back to him in two weeks. You know, he presents the songs. Hey, you know, we, we don't really like the ballad. The other one's kind of amp, but man, we think this one song, we think that's the hit. We, we think that's the lead off single. Um, we'll give you $10,000 for it. Just, we get it from there on out. You don't have anything. You don't get any points, no publishing, no nothing. Mm-hmm. We just give you $10,000 for your song. And then this is the fun thing that he told me. He's like, you know, sometimes I would go back and be like, you know, I'm working on some new stuff with my band or my solo record. And I, I really love this song. It means a lot to me. So I, I don't think I can do it. And they'll come back and throw another number at him. And then like, oh, you know, I don't think I can let, <laughs> let go for anything less than $120,000. And then it just turns into this thing where, you know, he was like, I don't know how many songs I sold to, to these producers and shit where I was like, I literally wrote that song in five fucking minutes. It doesn't mean anything to me, but I knew that they wanted it. So why the fuck wouldn't I drive up my price and get my hundred hundred thousand dollars? Because it's not like I'm going to get it on the back end. So I'm basically, this is my one, one time shot at making as much as I can off this. So fuck it. Why wouldn't I? And yeah, I and especially if they want if they want the song, and, they yeah. really, and if they already told you, and this, we like the song a lot, you know, they're already in their mind, they're already onto the budget. What do we or have to get the song? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But what else? What else did he tell you about about having to pitch songs and shit? That's interesting um, to know about. I mean, that's really cool storytelling right there. No, I mean, like, and that's kind of the thing, like, you know, that I 
that's why when I do the podcast, sometimes I kind of tend to over explain because I don't want people to think that like, like I said, that I'm either name dropping or I'm just talking on my ass. Like I want people to know that like, I'm kind of have a knowledge based on people, tribal knowledge, basically. I have the tribal knowledge people have kind of passed on to me through stories of being on the road or, you know, being a songwriter or being, you know, different avenues within the music industry. And so that's why I love talking about the business side of things is I don't think people really know how it works. And I'm not saying I necessarily know for sure, but I have been told some really fucking crazy stories. Uh, You know, like even, you know, like the guy I was just kind of talking about, like he's kind of talked about how, you know, there have been instances where, you know, a per or a label or a producer or whatever will throw a fuckload of money at him for this song. And then they buy it. And then, that song never even gets released. Yeah, that's, but I thought it was so true. great. Why would why would you? Why is a band or a label willing to throw that much money at something and then do nothing with it? Like, what's the point of that? And then I start thinking about you know, like I made the joke earlier about you know recoupability. You know, I've read stories about Victory, and I know you guys are on this label, but read stories about Victory where to keep bands in the red, you know, a band might have a fucking platinum record but they were taking out end cap at Best Buy because it was mm-hmm. the band from recouping and they didn't have to pay the band back. Oh, well, I'm sorry. You're, you know, $20,000 in, in, in the hole. Cause we took out an end cap ad at Best Buy or you know, not only use these cause these are publicly out there, but they would take out a full page ad and all press or whatever, put six bands on it, but charge each band for the full page ad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because well, the there's, ad- there's the way there's ways that labels do things, you know, yeah. that is for sure. It's yeah. super important if you're an artist and you're going to sign to a label, very important that you have a little bit of business sense. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in the beginning of my career, I didn't have any business sense, but I, don't think we, I was lucky. I was lucky that we were on a decent label, yeah. you know, and, and we had a good lawyer at the time for sure. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of weird investing that a label could do and charge the artist three, four, five times what it really costs. Sometimes they'll charge the artist for promotion campaigns and base it on a, you know, two, three month fee of what the PR firm would be charging. But sometimes the labels have those people on a yearly fee and they're paying them just monthly, you know, but they still want the artist to recoup based on the full rate of promotion basically is what occurs. Yeah. And it's similar with some things, some things like, for example, some things that are creative labels don't necessarily fully recoup on. And there's some things artists could really push a label, you know, to create, to help them create like videos and art and images and stuff like that. Anything that's graphical like that and visual labels really don't fully recoup on that. So that's like the one thing that, you know, an artist can kind of, you know, uh, bargain for, or ask for, and stuff like that, or demand even, depending who you are, I guess. Right. Here's a, here's a fun random question. So I, I made the comment to you, I texted you that I was like, oh, there, I found a handful of photos when looking for a photo of you, <laughs> where there were actually just photos of Sonny from POD. How often have you gotten confused for each other? <laughs> I've gotten confused for Sonny a couple of times, for sure. Definitely when I was definitely when I was younger, you know, now I I think I've grown older and I don't look as much like Zunny. We can't be confused as much, but um, (laughs) 
but for sure in the beginning, you know, a lot of times, you know, because POD was a, was massive. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we see POD now settled into like their thing, but when POD came out, it was fucking massive, dude. You know, like the video was being played on MTV all the time. I remember going to Europe and being on a on a was it a it was from Denmark to mainland Europe. I don't necessarily remember what the ferry was, but I remember like seeing their videos on the ferry at, for commercials and being like, holy fuck, they're, they're fucking massive. Like that's on a completely all, whole other level. Almost like POD was almost pop culture massive. You know, I, I would say that they were almost close to a household name during a time. I think what's wild. And I was kind of thinking about this today, actually, because one of the podcasts I was listening to was, uh, talking about just a lot of the things that we've gone through as a society of our age, roughly, you know, in our mid thirties to forties, all the shit we've gone through, you know, between nine eleven and, you know, natural disasters and all these kind of two, two, uh, economic downfalls and so forth and all this shit basically. And something I was kind of thinking about and all that was thinking about how nine eleven affected the Asian industry. Like I remember, I remember I was supposed to get Jay-Z's uh, Blueprint record. It came out 9-11, because that was when records came out on Tuesdays or whatever. And yeah, our, the Revolution was supposed to come out on that Tuesday, and it was postponed to the following week. Okay. Our See, first album was supposed to come out on 9-11. Okay. Because I remember I had to wait until everything kind of... Because like, I was still I was a senior in high school, so I had to wait uh, until... And that was nine days before my birthday, too. So, um, wow. I would, that was like my birthday gift for my parents. It's all I wanted. And I had to wait about a week before I could go get it because like there's just all this uncertainty about going to stores and public gatherings and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Kind of thinking about how, you know, you, you hear some bands talk about like we were supposed to put a record on this day or we put a record out and then that happened and then touring kind of got shot to shit and all that kind of stuff. Just thinking about how it kind of mirrors what we're going through right now, kind of not as serious because obviously people were still able to tour people just chose not to go out um mm -hmm. but unbeknownst to me i didn't realize that revolution uh was basically supposed to come out that time how did that affect you guys um well it was scary definitely scary we were in new york when that happened mm. um but uh how it impacted us you know with the music and, and the business end of things it, the record it, on Wikipedia, the album still has a release date of September 11th. Like if you go on Wikipedia and you look up at the album, you look up the album, it still says that it came out on September 11th, but the album really came out September 18th or 17th or something like that. It was pushed back one week. I don't know if the blueprint, the Jay-Z push, pushed the, the record back one week. He still put nope. it out. He put it out. I know some albums, I know some albums did come out. I'm not sure. I, I know Roadrunner pushed it back one week, but, um, but I think for us, man, we were, we were lucky we didn't have any songs that were violently titled on, on the album, you know? Because I, I do remember that there was acts that had, like Drowning Pool had uh, Let the Bodies to the Floor, and that got taken off the radio for like almost a year. Um, a couple of other acts, uh, I know that my friends from 40 Below Summer had a single called Falling Down, 
yep. when that occurred and that got taken off the radio because of the title. Um, so it was an uncertain time for sure. I don't think anybody really, you know, the people that were still getting airplay and that they still had their songs on radio were lucky because, you know, a lot of people were getting pulled off the air because of violent lyrical content and, you know, the, the stations were being very careful about what kind of message they were putting out there after what occurred and all that. But we were, we were impacted in that the, the label moved the album back one week. Um, we already had a tour booked with Machine Head to go to Europe. And I remember, I do remember most of the band wanted to cancel the tour. Um, I remember I argued against it and, you know, pleaded, ple basically pleaded and said, I realize we're from New York and this is happening here, but this is like one of the biggest opportunities we have is to go open for Machine Head in Europe. Um, and yeah, and I mean, we stuck to it. We We went and it was... I don't know. I think we left like a month after 9-11, maybe a month and a half after 9-11. Um, and it was an uncertain time, but it, we did feel like rebels, you know, renegades maybe a little bit because you're out there not canceling things and still kind of saying, you know, fuck it. If they're not going to cancel, we're not going to cancel and we're going to do it for people. So you feel like this slight rebellious mentality against what is what is occurring, not necessarily against like people or the media or anything like that. But, but it was an amazing tour without that tour. If we would have canceled that tour, our European career would have been, would have probably taken years to really unfold. Mm. So I don't remember the year that you were on OzFest. I want to say it was O2. Maybe. Uh, yes. O2. Yeah. What, uh, I've only been to one and a friend of mine was on it. I think I was, I think I can't remember. Did I tell you about how my friend being on uh tour teching and tour managing for uncle? Did I tell you about that? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You told me a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What's a, what's a fun memory you have from Ozfest? Uh, from Ozfest? Sure. Oh man. My favorite, my, my, my most fun memory from Ozfest is Phil Anselmo passing on in our bus couple times <laughs> and his crew having to come and get him to f having to find first go and find him because they didn't know which bus he was on and you know at the Ozfest there's 40 buses and when you got somebody missing and and you your bus has to leave you know the tour manager usually does the rounds and stuff but that's my most fond memory uh, other than obviously the shows you know the shows were really what it was about I remember Dino Dino from Fear Factory played a song with us in LA on stage. Um, you know, I think, I think Mark from Chimera in Cleveland came on stage to do a song. You know, I, I remember making great friendships with people then that I, I didn't know would last this long, you know? You know, it's funny. We just had uh, Willie Adler on uh, a couple weeks ago. And I told my co-host the story of when I, cause I went to two dates on that Ozfest. I was actually a friend of mine that was on that was like, um, the board alone. <laughs> cause it was like his first victory he had really done. And he was like, one of the dudes on our crew quit. So like, I could, I could split some of my money. If you want to come out for the last like, two and a half weeks on this thing, like you'll have your crew taken care of the tour with, or you travel with us. 
and he was like, well, you know, you have to take the car and all that shit, so, like, I could teach you how to, like, do some of the stuff I need done to, like, help me. And I thought about it, and I was like, man, my parents, so I was just like, yo, I'm, I'm just going on tour. <laughs> you just took like, off? And you just took off? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, he was like, and he was, like, stressing so hard that day. He was like, dude, just, like, we're going to be in Detroit in, like, a week. So just come on for, like, a week. If you don't like it, you just fucking get off in Detroit, and you're cool. Like, it's whatever. But, like, he was, super, like I said, super homesick. And uh, I remember, like, really thinking about it. And then, like, the H2 Ocean girls were like, oh, we're going to Atlanta tomorrow on my day off to go to Brandon Bond's shop. And I was like, holy fuck, like, getting free tattooed by Brandon Bond when he was, like, at the top of his fucking game in the industry. And then it was like, oh, and then, like, you know, if everything works out, like, you know, and you want to keep doing this, like, we have a tour within this moment because in this moment was, like, the baby band on that tour that year that I went. And I was like, it was like, so we have another tour already ready to go and then, like, another one to start uh december like you know december into the new year and i was like "Ah," and i just said no and i kind of always think like man the last year basically of ozfest when i went i think that was the last year was the year was free but it's like all the people that i've met wait the last the the last time you went to ozfest it was free yeah it was a free year that's right they made it free and Lamb of God was Razi and Hatebreed was on the second stage. How the fuck did we all forget that Oswest was free for one year? Yep. Damn. And it brought out a lot of interesting people. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, was yeah. it like that? It was like a free you know, show like, out there? <laughs> it was interesting. I remember seeing uh, Mike The Miz, and I had only, because he had just started wrestling for WWE, and I was like, oh, I think this is that dude from the real world. And because, like, when I was side stage for Hate Breed, I saw him, like, looked across and I saw him, and I was like, this dude's getting down, but he's like fucking jacked. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Why does he look so familiar? And I remember walking through the pavilion at one point, saw him at the WWE tent, and I was like, oh, okay, like, no, I know where. Okay, that makes sense. But Hate Breed was on the Ozfest that we did, they were on the yeah. full whole year. They, yeah, yeah, they did the whole year. Because the way the Ozfest used to work back in the day, it was, oh, you two, guys it was the like, international one too, right? Yeah, we did some international shows for the Ozfest too, yeah. Yeah. But the way it used to work is it was two legs, and most bands would either get the first leg or the second leg. But some bands were lucky enough to do the whole tour. We were one of the bands that that was, you know, that got lucky and did the whole tour. But Haybreed also. I think it was us, Haybreed, Meshuggah. Us, Haybreed, Meshuggah, and Otep. Yeah. Did the whole tour. And then everybody else was half the tour. Like Glassjaw did half the tour. That band probably didn't happen very well back then. Well, I mean, back then it, it, it was definitely an odd show for them to be playing. You know, at least that fan base wasn't necessarily like a post-hardcore fan base. But all the bands were so excited to have them on that tour that it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. You know, because all the bands were so like they all the bands loved Glassjaw at that time. You know. Yeah. So I remember Austin, the Hatebreed guys, and and just being fucking stoked that Glassjaw was on it, you know? To have that kind of creative band on a tour like Ozfest. I mean, one could have argued that Chevelle wasn't the kind of band you would put on the Ozfest either. They were on the Ozfest that year as well. Yeah. I always thought that for... I always thought uh, Send the Band Below was too much of My Own Summer by Deftones. The what? The what? Oh, the uh, uh, send the pain below. 
that that uh, intro riff that they their chorus riff, which is also the the intro riff, is basically the same as Deftones Violent Summer or not Violent Summer. Uh, Be quiet and drive. Yeah, yeah. I mean that chord progression. And I don't mean to break your heart, but that chord progression was used long before the Deftones. Oh, it's sure. just the Deftones. The Deftones did it in such an amazing, classy way, really genuine, you know, and full of feeling for sure. That you know, yeah. it, it sticks as one of the greatest, one of the greatest times the one six chord progression has been used. Is without a doubt, be quiet, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I can think of a couple other good ones, but you know that one. one without good a doubt. Deftones riffs are good uh, riffs where someone yeah else yeah exactly. some some other good Deftones songs yeah for sure. All right, what's 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 yours? Um, well, for me, definitely "Bored" was like one of the coolest fucking songs. "Engine Number Nine was one of the coolest Deftones songs, you know. But "Bored" was like the song that I remember getting. I saw the Deftones open up for, it was Korn and somebody else at the Limelight in New York City. It was the Deftones, Korn, and one other band. And I don't know. the helmet tour? No, it was like, it was like a Korn radio show for K-Rock or something oh, okay. like that. But the Deftones were doing the tour, were on tour with them. And there was one other band that I can't fucking remember, man. Um, but I remember getting like a little demo tape. I then, by, back then, cassettes were still being passed around. And I remember a yeah. little black cassette tape that was the Maverick, you know, sampler for the Deftones. And it had board and seven words on it. And, um, and I remember thinking seven words, oh, it's a little too jumpy. You know, uh, I was a little bit more artsy and, you know, I, I, I didn't take to the whole like jump, 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 jump thing. Right. But bored pretty much like let me realize, oh, but this is what they really kind of do. They do this really. Yeah. Seven words just kind of sounds like the hip kind of song they did at the moment. And then when I, when I heard Adrenaline, you know, I realized, fuck, I was right. They are exactly like bored, really conceptual, thematic, you know, um, very in-depth music with great melody. And, you know, Seven Words was just like the happier song on the album, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think one of mine, and I mean, it's everyone's but and, how did you know, seven words how did seven words we're talking amongst huge deftones fans here so yeah. how did seven words sit with you when you first heard it did you think like this is what the deftones is like or were so, you like so i did a whole deftones discography run through with fallon from kitty like where we went album by album track by track and did everything that's up until now like we haven't done the, the newest one that's not out yet but um we both got on at around fur so we i do remember hearing deftone stuff on adrenaline i mean on okay okay no i had it right first time adrenaline but i didn't actively listen to them until around the fur so going back and one of my biggest fucking gripes about that record 
is you have Terry Date, who, you know, had done Pantera, has done legendary legendary records that sound fucking great. Mm-hmm. Why does that Deftones record sound like the guitars were recorded in a fucking wind tunnel? Well, Adrenaline is kind of, like, questionable like that, where you're like... That's why I don't like it. Like, it doesn't sound as... It's, it does... Yeah, it's got a little bit... I think what might have happened... They might have recorded that album like in their in their recordings in like their rehearsal studio. You yeah. know, they might have done it through all dynamic mics and something like that. Because it is it isn't like as big sounding as a as a as a date Terry date mix and recording for sure. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think about what somebody asked? Somebody asked what about Passenger? What was what was the first time when you first so, heard Passenger with Maynard on it? What did you say? So here's the funny thing, and I think, you know, always speaks to why I like the stories behind shit as opposed to just listening to something in music. Mm-hmm. I had read when White Pony was coming out that uh, I think it was in Guitar World, Stefan was talking about working with Maynard and was talking about that song. And he was like, you know, we just kind of wanted to experiment. We wanted to kind of make it you know, more Tool-esque. And so Maynard was like, oh, well, this, this thing you're doing, you got to kind of, and I might have the tempo wrong, but he's like, you know, you guys, let's just say you guys are playing 4-4 four, four for this song. That's how this song is written for you guys. Well, what we do is we put it in, like, 6-4. So it sounds one way, but, like, this other kind of tempo and this other vibe is what's going on, and that's what gives it that kind of, that groove. And it was kind of in hearing that where it was like, oh, so, like, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, Maynard sent over his vocals and that was that. It was, no, like, he was in the room with us, as we were kind of working on this and kind of helped shape it to be what it is. And to me, it's like, you know, you don't really ever hear that side of Maynard uh, in tour or perfect circle or anything. It's always like, he just does the lyrics and vocals and all that. And that's, that's all he does. So to hear, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that Maynard was there and helped the Deftones compose what is one of the greatest Deftones songs for sure. Because one could argue that Passenger is one of the coolest Deftones songs. And it's just like the Deftones. For me to hear this from you is actually, it it actually is endearing to Maynard that he worked with them in the room and was trying to like get to something creative with them. But he really guided them to something that is definitively Deftone sounding. Yes and no. Because it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like Tool really. No, but it didn't sound like Deftones either. It kind of was a little bit different. Sure, sure, sure. It was a little, yeah, it was a little uh, experiment. They were experimenting, but I think, I think the Deftones, we always accepted them as the band that experiments and it's okay to do. I think that like was some bands, it's, and it's weird. Some bands, how, how, how do we pick as fans, like which bands we allow to experiment, you know? Because there are some bands that you'll hear like, like when I hear Clutch do something other than Clutch, I'm like, D- please don't. I'm like, stop, please go back back to being Clutch. What was that? I said, but what is Clutch to you? Because to me, Clutch can be one of three different styles and sounds, which is kind of the beauty of them. Fuck, well, Clutch to me, yeah, yeah. Clutch to me definitely, they definitely evolved a little bit in their sound, without a doubt. But to me, always the escape from the prison planet will always be, you know, the ultimate, you know, Clutch album, without a doubt. Right. Um, But I... You know, like w- when Clutch experiments a little, it almost like hurts me because I'm so <laughs> attached. <laughs> I'm so attached to Escape from the Prison Planet, you know? Right. 
or like Rage Against the Machine, like would we expect, would we accept if a band like Rage Against the Machine experimented? Um, well, I guess sort of the way you can kind of answer that question is, I mean, isn't that basically what Audio Slave was? Was them kind of pushing what people expected from the band? In literally okay, the truest yeah. sense of the word, the band. That's an interesting answer. Like, sure, you, sure. Audio Slave was... Because you hear a song like Like a Stone, and I don't think I could hear... I don't think I would necessarily think of that being a Rage Against the Machine kind of song, but then you look at the cover they did of the Ghost of Tom Joad on the Renegades album. Yeah, and then yeah. you look at uh, the, the cover they did of... Uh, or not the cover, the... Uh, um, God, what is that fucking song on Battle for LA where it's like, Zach's kind of really quiet and he's like, and the only lyric I can think of in my head is like where he's like, where Jesus stripped there and da da da, and then the guitar comes in and it's like, well, done. like, and kind of has that typical rage riff. But it's yeah, like, they 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 kind of do a little bit of the slower the stripping down, stripping down the song. You know, <laughs> they they kind of go into those things, but but. Let's say Rage Against the Machine never broke up, right? Okay. Let's say they never, they never disbanded. And the last thing we heard was Evil Empire. And now let's say they came out with Like a Stone a ye two years after Evil Empire. That's it, Barnabas Broken Man. Thank you. Right, that's right, that's right. Okay, okay. I remember that track. That's my homie, Ruben. Ruben, you, you killed it with answering that. But not a broken man. What was it? Yeah. Born of a broken man. But not a broken man. Something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That song is fucking killer, <laughs> dude. Rage Against the Machine is definitely, without a doubt, one of the fucking greatest pocket just grooves, like fucking make you like not pay attention too much to the song, but I don't make know if you, you can really see this. feel it. I mean, to cut you off, we got like two minutes remaining, so we can just keep going when this goes and log back on for to finish in like a half hour well i mean we could we could cut it off but before we before we do i do want to i do want to because some people ask some questions and i want to make sure well that that's what i was saying we could come back that's on. how i scribble yeah. okay we could just log back on look that's how i scribble yeah. that's terrible huh hey man you Jesus can sell this for a lot of money you can sell those for it a looks lot of like money. a kid it looks like a kid wrote it my handwritten lyrics, though, for the album are going to be my... I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually starting to practice, you see? <laughs> I don't just use my phone anymore. I'm actually starting to practice handwriting all over again. Your calligraphy? But, um, but yeah, how do you want to do it, then? You, you yeah. want to just uh, log it off? Left, so uh, you you let me know, then. I'll end this right now. But when yeah. we come back, when we come back, we'll answer Let's a couple of the questions that people yep. ask, okay? Yep. Yeah, let's do that. I'll end this right now, and then we'll I'll log right, right back on, and we'll answer these questions, or you can answer those questions. Awesome. We'll be right back. All right, guys, hold hey. up, and, uh, and and we're gonna get to the questions. All right. What's up? You're on. We back right on. There you go. So let's get to uh, one of your questions that people ask um, you. Um. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, just general stuff, really. Um. Somebody had asked if we're getting some, a lot of people asking about touring, like when shows will occur, how shows will occur, where, if internationally shows will occur. I, I'm getting the feeling that people in South America are starting to get worried that they might not get shows for like a really, really long time. Are they having um, issues right now? No, but I think because of the COVID stuff and because touring is going to take a little bit to uptick. 
I think that it's going to be South and people, South America are like, are we, are we going to even see any bands for like the next year or two? But I know that, I know that we're, we're trying to do what we can. Definitely. Um, my booking agents are trying to book shows right now. Uh, there's like a September, October tour that hopefully we'll be announcing soon uh, for the U S there's some Mexico shows also within that tour. Um, you know, I think Monterrey, Monterrey is one of the cities, maybe the DF and Guadalajara hopefully will be in there for September, October, 2020. Uh, cause it's definitely not 2019. We ain't going back in time. Um, we don't want to go, we don't want to go through this shit again, you know? <laughs> um, and then some people were, someone did some, ask, somebody asked if Peru, shows. what was that? Uh, I see someone asked, are you doing any virtual shows? Uh, not yet. Not yet. Just basically letting the single exist first, you know, and just letting people digest at least one song. Eventually, once I have more songs out, I am going to do some streaming stuff. Like I'm going to do a live from a uh, fuel music thing. Um, that we're planning and a couple other cool things. Uh, hopefully some, hopefully some in-store signings when that nearing where the album comes out that we'll be streaming also the signing and the performance at the store and stuff like that. But you know, we're still working. We're still, luckily we have a lot of time and it's a lot of questionable stuff going on with promotion and touring in the music industry. So yeah, trying to, um, you know, be patient and, and, keep keep mindful of what's important if anything you know not r trying to rush nothing um and sometimes i feel even terrible being that guy that during all this craziness is like check out my new song i have new music you know yeah but in reality i, I do want everyone to know that we we um were supposed to put it out before this happened and somehow the universe delayed some things and, and uh, we didn't put it out and hopefully, you know, being able to have a little bit of time will, will allow us a, a more pleasant listening experience for everyone out there, you know? Um, yeah. But people were asking when, when will I get to Peru? Hopefully Peru soon, man. I want to try to plan a tour for South America sometime in early 2021, if possible. Um, hopefully that'll work out. I'd love to go back to Brazil, Argentina. I'd love to play some of these songs in, in South America. I think they're really going to connect with kids down there. Um, somebody was asking if we're going to Brazil, Argentina, for sure. Those are places that I must go. If I go to South America and I don't go to Brazil and Argentina, and, and Peru, I don't know, because not a lot of bands go to Peru all the time. You know, Peru is not like a country that a lot of touring bands visit, but I would love to go back. El Nino had an amazing show there, and, and the fans were incredibly loving. When we showed up at the hotel, there was like 100 El Nino fans outside the hotel, like waiting for us. We didn't even know how they find out that we were there, but, you know, when I, I guess when you live in a country that you don't see a lot of bands, that you, you really live that experience as best you can, you know? So hopefully we'll get there. Brazil, Argentina, Peru, I heard your questions. We're trying to book tours. Um, somebody had asked um, what, what vape products I like to use. I use Left Coast Extract. 
I don't know if, if y'all heard of them, but they're a company from California, makes amazing um, oils and, and just, you know, great tasting product. That's all you got to say about that. Um, somebody had asked something private. Uh, how's my relationship to Dave and Laz now? And, you know, unfortunately, I'm not really at freedom to speak about that. Um, that's something that maybe I could eventually save for a book, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, and maybe somehow, it'll be, spoken, somehow it'll be spoken about eventually. But, you know, it's just, it's not going to be from my end for a very long time. You know, I, I, I want to try to let go of resentment. Am I happy? No. Am I upset? Sure. You know, but I'm going to try to let go of resentment. Because that's just the only thing that really feels right, you know. You probably can't answer this. Is there a statute of limitations or like a sunset clause on on an NDA? Does it expire after a certain point? Um, our NDA is not. Yeah, our NDA is not forever. Okay, but, interesting. I didn't know. But they you know, were. it's it's it allows. I'd say that NDAs are fair because it allows enough time. They, all it is is a piece of paper that allows the parties to get over it. Okay. You know what it is? That's really yeah. what it is. Because just, it's so I've personal. Never... <clears throat> In situations like that, it's so personal. Everybody gets really, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know I took it very personally what was occurring. So you, to you me. You did one of these <laughs> right after. So to me, to, me, to, let, to like, be like, okay, well. You know, it's time. It's time to let go. It's the it's the best way to do it. Or else, yeah. you know, you're a slave to being upset about something all the time. You're a slave to fucking the past, really. And who the fuck yeah. wants to do that? Because in the past, we've all made millions of mistakes, right? All of us, yeah. not just me. Everybody makes mistakes in the past. And the beauty about life is learning from that. And I think I learned from my mistakes this time around for sure. Um, Somebody asked what my inspiration was for composing. Um, and I think I've answered that a lot in a lot of the interviews that I've done recently, but mostly life, life and just personal experiences that I don't necessarily have conclusions to yet. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, I, I write out of personal experience that I may not know what the conclusion is. And perhaps in writing music, I uh, am seeking for an answer in some kind of weird way, you know, myself. Yeah. Maybe that's why maybe it, it, the more genuine that feeling is perhaps is why it connects with people that are also seeking an answer for something. You know, whether it's their own personal obstacle, a challenge they're facing. I realized in life that, that the loss of somebody you truly care about, how, how much it impacts people, man. And how much when we're young, we don't realize that. When we're young, we live through life and death isn't something that really impacts us. When you get older and you start losing friends and family, you start realizing holy shit, this is temporary. Yeah. This is temporary. I don't have these people. They're gone. They're gone because this is temporary. What the fuck am I doing? 
Yeah. So I think loss drives a lot of what I write about. You know, having lost family members to me, I mean, it's something that I, I still have a hard time not crying about it if I start to think about, it, you know. Yeah. But, um, but like all other things, you don't want to be a slave to that feeling. You, you just want to remember, not forget, and talk about it, you know, talk about it with your friends. Like if I talk about it in songs, I kind of feel like I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it with my friends. Um, right. And then somebody else had asked, the good in the dark in Il Nino. Um, from a lyrical standpoint or from a business I don't know. standpoint? I don't know. I wasn't. Um, somebody's asking is a single representation of the album and main sound. The single is the more stripped down version. The single is the most stripped down song on the album. The it's rest of the album, yeah, the rest of the album has more things. There's like even drum beats Oscar laid down on some of the album and there's like some electronic stuff on, on one song and there's like a piano song only. So there's different little things. So, you know, Die Alone is just like a, a really great introduction because there isn't a lot of players on it. Yeah. You know, it really is just like a genuine, here's a song, here's me. This is what I sound like. Yeah. Um, but somebody had asked about the good and bad in El Nino. And I mean, obviously, I can't get into too much of the details of what the good. They asked what the good and the dark of El Nino was. I can't get into all those details. I can't get into the details of the good. The good was amazing. Um, we didn't realize that early on that we were going to make an impact at all. You know, I remember being in my car, uh, going to Roadrunner Records. Laz was in the car. We were driving to Roadrunner Records for some meeting, like fuck knows what, I don't know, look at pictures to like, okay, pictures, promotional pictures or something. And I'll never forget this moment. We were driving past the Intrepid. And I don't know if anybody's ever been to New York. The Intrepid is the, the big, you know, the big aircraft carrier that is now a museum that's parked right on the Hudson River. And I remember still the visual of I'm looking to the right and there's Laz and there's the Intrepid and Laz goes, what are your expectations of what, you know, of, of this album? Revolution hadn't been released yet. And I remember telling him even back then, I don't, I don't have any expectations. I don't know what the expectations are. I remember telling them, I don't have any expectations. All we could do is just write music that we think is cool. Right. And I'll never forget that moment because even back then, having been signed, having all this pressure on, and da, 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 I really felt like I didn't, I, what is the expectation? The expectation is do the best you can as a musician. That's it. You know? I mean, in, in moments like that, I think is what led the great feeling, at least me personally, the things that really, really I can hold on to and take to the grave, you know, and, and, and say, you know, God forbid I die next week. I could say, yeah, I lived a great life, man, had some amazing moments, met some amazing people. Um, but the, the good was definitely amazing. Just, I don't know any other word other than fucking amazing. We didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. When, when the song started taking off, it was a huge positive surprise. I didn't, I thought we were too heavy to be accepted, even though we were doing like, 
little, you know, melodic things and trying to be more radio maybe, or, or just crossover is really the word, but in crossing over, you're, you're hoping for bigger fan bases, you know? Um, right. But none of it was expected. The best parts that I remember were like when it really started taking off, when people really loved it. You know, when the fans, the show, seeing the fans singing the lyrics back, to me was a fucking mind blow, dude. I was like, no fucking way. We're putting this many kids in rooms and, you know, like 25% of our lyrics are in Spanish and we're in like <laughs> Germany, you know, or like we're in Russia or we're in friggin' the US even, you know? So that, that, the good of it was something that is, uh, I couldn't even explain. I just, it's, I'm just grateful for it. I know that I'll be able to take it to the grave and be like, fuck, what an amazing experience I had. Even with all the bad shit that happened in my life, you know, what really do I have to fucking complain about, dude, you know? I mean, I, I got my own struggles to deal with even right now, but the good was amazing. The fans, the, the exposure, and, and the media loving us at one point was the downside of that was the downside of all that like you know just as depressing as it was exciting sure the downside when things weren't going as good and i i don't want to talk about the dark the dark of el nino as a question posed but you know the the downside was terrible i mean you when you're so attached to something for that long and and even even when we f were first beginning even into the second, third album when things started turning and, and music industry started changing and uh, fads started, you know, changing and what the, what the media expected from groups started changing, what the listener expected from groups started changing. You know, there was a downside and there was, you know, a lot of questioning and stuff like that. But still, the good, the good parts never really went away. Um... And even through the separation and me leaving the band and all that, I, I, I'm so happy I could hold on to all those memories. Some people go through this and then they feel resentment for a long time, you know, because I've, I've, met, I've met band members. And I, you know, and I know they know who they are. The guys that are out there that broke up with bands that I know are having issues that you talk to me and you tell me the issues you're having, you know, or like, oh, I left because of this, da, 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 da. I, you know, I, I'm lucky that at least I get a little bit of a fresh breath, put new air in the lungs, write some new music. It's different than what I was doing. I'll get back to the metal. But, you know, for now, I, I kind of, I really need to just, man, focus on being genuine and just doing things that are really genuine. Um, there was one last song. One last, not last song. Sorry about that. I'm not going to sing to you guys. I'm not going to sing to you guys now. But, <laughs> but somebody had asked that, what was it like to, uh, to shoot videos back in the day? Because I guess somebody saw the Zoom conference that, that I had done with my mm -hmm. homie Jeremiah from Concrete Dream and uh, Tommy Roulette from Jinx and shifty shell shock and aj from fire from the gods and who else was on that uh a, a bunch of really good good friends okay um 
Danny Diablo was on it. And, and I had said how expensive the fucking What Comes Around video was to shoot. So there, somebody had asked, what was the experience like, you know, shooting the videos that are that expensive? Like, what, what did all that money really go to? And right. I guess maybe people are really interested to hear in, hear in this shit because the way the music industry is now, everything is a budget cut. Yep. Everything is a budget cut. If you think politicians have budget cuts, <laughs> you wait till you fucking hear the music industry budget cuts, buddy. All right? But anyway, um, you, got, you got a lot. Back in the day, if you had that kind of money to shoot a video, you got a lot. You had catering trucks. You had a fucking 10-story boom with lights and cameras on it. You know, you had trucks of, like, you know, carrying any kind of camera equipment you would ever fucking want. You had people there doing your makeup, you know. There was a trailer you go into, and you sit down, and they do your makeup. Then there's a clothing trailer, and you go in... And there's clothing. A lot of people think that expensive videos, the artist just shows up looking cool. Like, oh, shit, he looks cool like that all the time. Look at how fresh he looks in the video. He must be cool. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Most of them show up in pajamas. And then there's, you know, a, a room where you could go and they kind of show you, look, this is what the wardrobe person has today. And then you kind of, from there, you use your own brain and say, what do I like? What would I like to wear? What would my fans think you know is not going to be like what the hell is that guy doing why is he wearing a frog outfit on the video you know <laughs> but um and then other other than that there was some things that were incredibly uh surprising there was a lot of things were, that were pleasing about it but obviously later on you go to realize god we paid a lot of money for that you know when the record labels get into you know recouping which Roadrunner Records we did recoup, but you know it, it took a long ass time. Dude. <laughs> Holy shit! Um, and then I remember there was some like shocking negative things about it. Um, that I, I like, for example, I never knew that when you shoot a video, you're supposed to lip sync. <laughs> that was unknown to me before even on God save us. All right. Now you guys are going to, you guys might go like, Oh God damn. Christian is a naive fucking dude. He didn't even fucking know. He's a 24 year old fucking musician touring. And he didn't even know that bands lip sync. But to my defense, the only video thing I ever understood of anything ever was MTV headbangers ball, you know, it's like I watched videos on Headbangers Ball, and that's all I understood. I never questioned how do they get done. You right. know what I mean? I never asked, like, how do they shoot music videos? Even into my early 20s, I remember being like, they show up and they play the song, and then and they don't record it. They don't record the audio, but they're playing the song, and then the, the director matches it up somehow. I don't know how they do it, but that's how they do it. So the day that I found out that you actually lip sync, that there's like a speaker playing the song, and you're supposed to act like you're singing the song. There was what comes around in the desert. And I remember my heart. I remember being heartbroken and being like, what do you mean we don't get to perform the song like we did for the God Save Us video? 
<laughs> you know, because for the God Save Us video, they let us perform it, you know, and holy <laughs> shit, I almost lost it. They let us perform it. And there was like, well, I'll, I'll, since it's the last question, I'll just hold it so you don't fall again. They let us perform the song mm. and they gave, a, they gave me a mic and there was a PA and I sang it and Dave played with click track, but that was the thing that allowed them to sync the track was the click through Dave's ear, but everybody else was just kind of like playing, you know, the director let us do whatever the hell we wanted. We played the song, but for what comes around, we show up at this fucking massive, like video production affair in the middle of the desert. And I remember doing the whole trailer, getting ready and, you know, oh, what, what are you going to wear? How, you know, where are you going to sit? What, where, where's each band member going to go? And then the moment when they're, when they're telling you, oh, and the speakers are going to be playing the song, you just got to make sure that you look like you're singing it. <laughs> it was like fucking heartbreak, bro. I was like, yo, are you kidding me? What do you mean? I'm not, I don't get a microphone and like a PA to sing the song so we can shoot it for real. <laughs> and that was me. That was my first ever uh, attempt at acting. Because that's what I was doing on the What Comes Around video, was fucking acting my ass off. <laughs> and that's it. That were all the questions, man. I don't got anything else. We probably freaking bored people enough anyway. <laughs> no, nah, I mean, this is fun. I mean, I, uh, like I said, when I asked you to do this, I was like, oh, it was easy to do bullshit with you. I mean, one of the things they ended up talking about was Aaliyah. On the thing, I don't know if I'll keep it in because I don't know if anyone really gives a shit about it. But well, I think some people, some people, I think would care about the Aaliyah thing. I mean, you know, she was no matter what kind of music you listen to, Aaliyah was an amazing artist, dude. There was a song I learned today. I uh, threw on an Aaliyah's greatest hits because her shits, other than the first record, her stuff is not on any streaming service. Uh, people are la people are laughing because I dropped the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was one of those things I was listening to a song, and there was one that popped up that I was like, I didn't know this was Leah. I thought this was a Brandy song. So, I mean, I what song? I thought it was a Brandy. I thought it was Brandy. Oh, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I was, I mean, I found a song today that I didn't even know was one of hers that I was like, oh, I know this song. I just didn't know it was hers. So, you know who's dope, too? I mean, yeah, not as, not as, not as dancey, but Tony Braxton. Oh, dude, that was my wife and I's wedding song. You're dude, Tony. Dude, Tony Braxton is a fucking badass songwriter, dude. Yeah. Dude, I don't you care. Know. If you're a metalhead and you even say anything bad about Tony Braxton, we might have to fight. Dude, you know, she's just my, that badass. One of my favorite songs that I've been jamming the shit out of lately that kind of fits that like that kind of vibe is uh, Foxy Brown with Blackstreet. Mm. Man, that's a fucking sexy groove. Mm-hmm. God damn. That's a fucking There's some song. good... There's some good music out there, man. I remember pop music went through like a really dark phase, but I think or that like Lance said, like Jagged Little Pill era, or like what do you mean? No, like like a dark phase where where I, I didn't maybe dark isn't the right word. It went through a happy phase. Oh, okay, all right, gotcha. Where pop music was extremely happy, but I do I do think that like for example, like Lady Gaga and 21 Pilots are really changing what pop music is supposed to sound like, you know? And now you're even having artists like Justin Bieber do like darker sounding songs. Yeah. Which yeah. is interesting, I guess. It's the evolution of pop culture. That's something I'll never be able to really figure out, though. I've always 
thought, you know, okay, I'm a music lover so much to the point that I could maybe kind of figure out where music is going. And then something happens and you're like, fuck, I'll never be able to figure this shit out. How the hell did that become so famous? (laughs) Like, okay, ready? Yeah. And I get it what made people like this. And I'm not knocking. I'm not the kind of person to knock on, on somebody who's just doing what they like, you know? But if we're going to talk and say anything about pop culture today, we have to give the props to rock and roll, okay? All these artists, huge pop artists that are really making a change today, that, are, that people really love today, like Gaga. Gaga was a rocker. Malone, Post Malone, Post Malone, Post Malone is a rocker. Takashi 69, Takashi 69 was a metalhead kid from the Bronx, from Brooklyn. Okay. Um, I could keep going. You know, there's there's other artists in hip hop or pop, whatever you want to say it. But this song, for me, I was like, I, I'll never get it. Old Town Road. Okay. But the day that I found out that it's a nine inch nail song that is sampled. Yeah. yeah. I went back and listened to the song and I fell in love with the instrumental version, even though I still, you know, couldn't dig like the, cause I mean, obviously I'm here living in California, right? I don't understand nothing about old town road. I mean, there's some, uh, you know, uh, equestrian fields around us, but I don't have a horse. You know what I'm saying? I don't have cowboy boots, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not saying that I, maybe I wouldn't want to have one, but, I can't like relate to that culture too much, but I imagine, you know, to some people it did, but it's a nine inch nail song. So even the things that are killing it, that are killing it, the most successful song all of last year came from a nine inch nail song. Hello, maybe media. Let's bring it back to rock a little bit, you know, pop culture. Let's bring it back to rock a little bit. It'll be okay. I think we know how to, we know what kind of music people would want to hear. Look at what's happening in pop. All these people that are really taking and driving the boat, they're all just rockers, you know? And I, I, I think it's awesome. Well, did you have any more questions? You say you had one more or? No, that was it. That was all the questions I had. Technically, the last one was the, what do you, what did you get for shooting a video for that much money? And then you t- you talked about Aaliyah, so I just wanted yeah. to put out there that, hey, you know, pop culture is cool. And the, and the best people in pop culture, they actually are rock people. They're rock fans. They listen yeah. to rock. Like CeeLo Green, CeeLo Green listens to rock and alternative music, you know? And these are some of the most badass songwriters in hip-hop and in pop music, too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But all right, right, brother. I love my... Let's call uh, it then. Yeah. Well, I was just... Yeah. I mean, this is an hour and a half, so... (laughs) This is about as long as the podcast, technically, if I don't edit any of it. Right on. Well, where can everyone... uh, Thank you guys for logging on. What are you going to do? I'm going to... I think I'm going to go for a walk. Try to burn some calories or something. Probably going to watch some, some terrible TV here in a minute with my wife. Right on. Right on. 
Well, have fun, brother. And uh, we'll let everybody know when the podcast is coming out. The podcast was a little bit more, I think we stayed a little bit more on some topics, but, you know. Yeah. This is just IG Live. We're we're out here. What are we doing? We're just like, what are we going to do on a Wednesday, really? You know? Yeah. No, It's kind of like a middle of the week catch up, and I'm probably going to try to do one a week to at least catch up. Maybe we can do another one soon. You know what I'm saying? Let's catch up again. Yeah, absolutely. Peace. Peace.